Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. For a long time on this podcast, we have talked about how to deal with pregnancy, with fertility, with being a working woman and a mom and what that looks like. But I want to transition a little bit today and talk about what it looks like to raise kids. Esther Wojcicki, known as Dr. Waj by short, is an American journalist, educator, and the vice chair of the Creative Commons Advisory Council. She has studied technology and education and holds degrees from UC Berkeley in English and political science and has secondary degrees in journalism, French history, and secondary school administration, as well as an MA in educational technology. Dr. Waj is considered the most influential educator in contemporary times, and her pedagogical and epistemological philosophy is being adapted by local Silicon Valley schools, as well as national and global educational programs. She is the pioneer of Moonshot Thinking, a program that she uses in schools, and her influence in technology-enabled schools has been central to the tenets and design of new modern education systems. She is also known as the mother in Silicon Valley who raised three of the most successful women in the United States. You may recognize her as the mother of Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube, of Janet Wojcicki, who has a PhD in medical anthropology and teaches at the University of California, San Francisco's Medical Center, and Anna Wojcicki, the founder of the biotech and genetics testing company 23andMe. Today on this episode, we get to talk to Esther about her core principles in her pedagogical style and her parenting style, how she promotes independence, critical thinking, and encourages kids to dive into topics that truly excite them. Her focus and work is on how to help children become young adults by developing the self-sufficiency to take control of their futures. She is recently the author of a newly published book called How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. In the book, she outlines her acronym for success, TRIC, which stands for Trust, Respect, Independence, Collaboration, and Kindness. Today, we get to go back in time and hear about her pregnancy journey, her entry into the world of teaching and education and then grounded and practical examples of how to implement this framework of trust, respect, independence, collaboration, kindness into parenting, the classroom, as well as the business setting. I'm so excited to bring Esther to the show, so let's dig in. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Hey, hey, I made a thing and I want to tell you all about it. It's one of our new guides and it's up on our website. One of the biggest struggles in my business isn't coming up with new ideas or doing more. One of the biggest challenges is focusing, figuring out how to do less, and making sure I have clarity about doing just the right things. I wish I could say that I had it all figured out and I have a magic wand to make life easier, poof, presto, but not quite. But what I do have is a structure of questions, just three questions that I return to time and time again that helps me sort myself out whenever those piles of to-do lists are getting way too long. 
It's a three-step process, and I walk you through how to do it and what it looks like. Three questions for clarity, simplicity, and a new superpower, which is saying no to the things that you don't actually need to do. If you want the free guide, head to startuppregnant.com slash stop. That's startuppregnant.com slash stop, S-T-O-P, and you can grab the guide for free. The link is also in the show notes. It's our freebie guide for figuring out what to drop, how to do less, and how to simplify your business whenever you feel the chaos descending upon you. Everyone, I'm so excited to have Esther Wojcicki on the show. Esther, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to start by asking you one of my favorite questions to ask, and I know it's early in the morning for you. So so what time did you wake up this morning, and what was the first thing that you did? Well, I woke up, I'm an early riser, so I woke up at about 10 after 6, and the first thing that I did, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but the first thing I did was get on my computer and, and see what's going on in the world. Because I, I probably would, you know, on bad days, it makes your day not so pleasant. But that's what I do. I want to see, like, what's happened? What's going on? What are people thinking about? Anything, anything big that happened today that you noticed or that you read? Well, I think the biggest thing that happened today was a lot of people talking about the fire in Paris and, you know, the aftermath of that and how all the donations that have come in. And then they were analyzing the, you know, how donations don't come in in some other cases and how they have all come in in Paris and how Notre Dame was really the heart of Paris and the tragedy of that. So that was, I think, the main thing. And then there was one other thing about Jack Dorsey. He gave a talk at TED yesterday, and they said that he was the head of something called, which they named the Twitanic. And <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. And they said that he's like the captain on the ship, and he sees a big iceberg coming down you know, in the path. And the question is, like, what's he going to do about it? And the answer was, oh, I'm just really calm. Nothing much is really going to happen. And all the passengers on the ship are saying, do something now, do something now, we're going to crash, we're going to crash. And so I think the criticism was the same sort of, it was toward Twitter. It's like, we're headed toward a crash, we're headed toward a crash, and nobody's doing anything. We're just like, can you fix Twitter? And so (laughs) (laughs) that was, I think those are the two main things that I saw online this morning. And then do you have any, do you drink water, coffee, tea? How do you get into your day? So I drink, I'm usually a water person, and I like to drink this water that has a flavor. It has no calories, but it's called hint water. So I drink that, or I drink some kind of a sparkling water. And then I don't eat breakfast, usually until 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm, I'm somehow not hungry, but I'm always a little bit thirsty. So, and then later on, you know, when I eat breakfast at 10 o'clock, I drink green tea. I love green tea. I love peach green tea, to be honest, or mango green tea. It's really good. Try it. <laughs> I, I actually have. It is really good. I'm a big fan. I have a, I have a small, small kid at home and I'm drinking more coffee than I should right now, but it is also helping me do what I'm doing. So 
Yeah. It is well, what some it is. people some people do well on coffee. The problem with me and coffee is I'm, I already have a really high energy level, and if I drink coffee, I don't sleep at night. So I sort of gave up coffee. <laughs> Tea is good. So you have written this book. It's coming out in May 2019. How to raise successful people: simple lessons for radical results. Can you talk about what gave you the idea to? When did you come up with the idea? I, I should write a book about this. Well, I've had a lot of questions about like, what did you do to your daughters to that they seem so able to navigate the world, the tech world, in a world of men? And so, how did how did that happen? And they don't seem to be. It doesn't get to them. They're not flustered. They're not angry. They they seem to just be able to navigate and you know have a good time and make a lot of friends and do a good job. And so I thought, well, that was one question that was happening repeatedly over and over again. And then the second question was, you know, why do so many kids want to take your classes? And what have you done over the years? Because I started with 19 students in, in 1984. There were 19 kids in my journalism class. And then by 2000, well, just last year, 2018, or even 19 now, I had over 600 kids taking these journalism classes. And this year is going to be over 700. And I have seven other teachers. And so the question was, what have you done to change the way that you teach or change the way teaching is happening that attracts all these kids? Because this is an elective. They do get University of California credit for it, A to G credit. But it is an elective program. So Nobody has to take it, but I have kids, you know, from the super smart all the way to the kids who are struggling in school that all want to take it. And so I thought, oh, I'll write a book. That way I don't have to say it a million times. I'll just, I will just hit whenever they have a question. It was like, ah, I have the perfect thing for you. Here's a book. And so that's why, that's why I wrote the book. And did you know from the get-go, like, I have a clear outline, I know that this is the content that I want to write, or did it take time to tease out and discover? Did you have to think back on your life and be like, how did that happen? What was the process like for you? The process was actually a little bit, bit painful, because I had to think back and try to squeeze out what I had done. Because I remember one of the things that I did is I asked my students, and this was actually in about 2005, six. I asked my students, you know, why do you take this class? Why are you, what's so exciting about this class? Why aren't you taking something else? You know, there's a lot of electives out there. There's Palo Alto High School has a lot of different classes that you can choose. And then I got the same answer from all of them, many of them. At that point, my class had maybe, or the program had about 300 kids. And the answer was consistent. And it was always you trust us. And you know, that did not register. I, I just like, I thought, oh, they probably can't think of anything else to say. And so they really don't know what to say. Uh, but I got this repeatedly, you trust us, you trust us. So I started to think about it. Because I thought, well, doesn't everybody trust them? Or do I trust them differently? What do I do? And so I started looking back on that. And especially when I started to write the book, the question was like, what am I actually doing that other teachers aren't doing? And it turns out that my whole program is based on trusting the kids and empowering them. 
And then I looked back at exactly how I run the program, how I run the class from the beginning that when they enter the class, you know, the first part of the day later on, and what do I do during the class that gives them this incredible feeling that I trust them and respect them, which is what they said. That's what I had to do in order to write the book because I didn't have this acronym that I developed later, which it's called TRICK. I didn't have it when I first started. And the reason I started with trust and respect as part of the acronym is because that's what they said was the most important thing. And then this third, fourth, the, there's five letters in there. The next one is I, independence. And they said, you give us a lot of independence, you teach us to collaborate, and you're kind to us. And so I thought, that is, that's the acronym. That's what I'm going to write, how I'm going to organize this book. And my own children, they they actually, one thing, they couldn't figure it out either. But one thing, they did say the same thing, only they didn't say trust. They said, you gave us a lot of independence, mom. You know, you let us do a lot of things on our own. And then you never really got upset about things. You know, you just showed us how to do it. So that's how I put it all together. And I tried to make it easy for other parents to do. And the way the book is organized, it's organized in that acronym. So the first part of the book is trust. And so how do you trust your child, how a teacher can trust kids in a classroom, and trust in the business world? So how does it carry out into the business world, and why do some companies do better than other companies? Why are some companies more creative than others? And since I was there at the beginning of the founding of Google, I took a look at what they do and their hiring process and the way they treat their employees. And it's consistent. It's it's trust and respect for people that makes a huge difference. And so that's why the book's organized that way. And that's why it took me, you know, it took me a while. I mean, a few years to try to figure out exactly how I would organize this. I first talked about Trick, and I think it was 2014, at a talk that I gave, a TEDx talk, Beacon Street in Boston. And, you know, they asked me for what, what I was doing, and I, I had to come up with something. And so that was the beginning of the whole thing. I am so curious about these elements, especially this trust and respect, because one of the things that the description of the book says, you say, talk to infants as if they are adults. And, and I think that like, it gave me shivers when I read it, because it's like, it is the embodiment of, of really trusting and respecting even the tiniest of people. What can you talk? Do you have specific examples of what it looks like? Like, how do you implement trust? What does that look like in the classroom or in parenting? Well, first of all, you know, when I talk to your kids, you, you, a lot of people use baby talk. It's kind of a natural instinct, but you know, in addition to the baby talk, you might want to just talk to them as a, as their, you know, a partner. So I used to take them to the store with me, especially Susan, because I didn't have a babysitter at that point. And they had these things called infant seats. You just park your kid in this infant seat and I just put her in the front of the shopping cart. And I would walk down the aisle and I would talk to her as like, so what should we be buying today? I mean, is this a good orange? Is this a bad orange? You know, I would I would show her all the things that I was doing. And I think that the other people in the store thought I was totally nuts, to be honest. 
<laughs> so, and I know that the people at the, the checkout people at the store used to look, you know, a little askance at me. It's like, oh my God, here comes this crazy mom again. But, you know, I did it. It was fun for me. So what also I did with Susan, you know, Janet was born when Susan was 18 months old. So one of the first things I did with Susan is I said, I gave her a duty on how to take care of Janet. And her duty was she was supposed to call me whenever Janet cried because there was no baby monitor then. And we lived in a two-story house and I couldn't hear from the upstairs to the downstairs. So her responsibility was she was kind of like the baby monitor. Mom, you know, Janet's crying. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was, I think, the beginning. The other thing I did, you know, as I mentioned, we had cloth diapers. So, you know, you had to fold these diapers. You know, you wash them yourself, you have to fold them. So Susan became a diaper folder <laughs> at, <laughs> at the age of 20 months. She thought this was actually a very important skill. And, you know, kids can do things if you just give them the opportunity. So I, I trusted her to do a lot of things, including, you know, letting me know when she was crying, helping me fold the diapers, helping me, you know, she would, would, if Janet would cry, she would shake a toy in front of her or something like that. So she grew up with this idea that she could do things, that she was capable, and that I trusted her to do it, which I did. And so I think that's just the very beginning of, you know, when they're really small. I also, the other thing I wanted to mention is the whole sleep thing. I always trusted Susan to put herself to sleep, you know, so I'd put her in the bed, pat her on the back. She didn't like pacifiers. So, you know, I tried to give her one, but she didn't want it. You know, she had her stuffed animal collection, you know, took over the crib. And so she put herself to sleep. She learned to self-soothe pretty early on. And I came up with this idea just independently. Honestly, I don't, I did not read a book of any kind that told me to do this. The only book that I did read that made a big difference to me was Dr. Spock. You know, he was the one that told you, there's a lot of medical information in there. But he had like the first chapter of the book, maybe it was even the first paragraph, where he said, trust yourself, trust your own instincts. And so that was what I, I believed him, because I didn't have any other authority and that's one thing that I think all young parents can do is really you, the mom, you know, you know best. You should trust your instincts and you don't have to, you know, rush out and call somebody right away. But I do encourage you to teach your baby to sleep by himself or let them go to sleep by themselves as opposed to needing you to be there to put them to sleep. Because that kid learns really quickly. I mean, they learn day one or two. They're so smart. And if you set up a pattern for them to behave when they go to sleep, I'll tell you, they're going to hold you to that pattern for a long time. So, you know, you might want to, if, you know, when they're very small, you know, you can hug them, rock them, pat them, to whatever. But I would make sure that they have their own bed. And that they think of that bed as a sanctuary, a place where they can, you know, play with their toys, talk to themselves. I mean, I always used to hear Susan wake up, 
you know, she'd wake up and she'd be having a large conversation with some animal in her bed. I don't know which one of her stuffed animals she was talking to. But I think that that was, that was a way for her to feel like she could take care of herself and that crib was her own space. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's different than the, you know, than the way that I think today they have that co-sleeping, I guess it's it's kind of a, a phase more than anything else, where, you know, you want your, you put your child to bed in the same bed with you. And I'll tell you, those kids don't ever want to get out because they think that's how you go to sleep. I'm telling you, trust the fact that your kid is really smart because he is. He, she is smart. They're so smart. It's so interesting because we, our doctors told us you can't spoil a newborn. Our doula told us that as well. Like for the first three months, you just round the clock, you're with them. But there's that moment when my little ones, both of them turned, it's like two, three months and they look at you and they're like, oh yeah, boob to sleep or put myself to sleep. This is a no brainer. Like, of course I'm going to like, I'm no dummy. And you realize the the other day, uh, the Henry is my six month old. And he was I was carrying him, I was wearing him in a front pack. And I was like, Oh, hi, Kelly to a friend of ours. And I was like, say hi to Kelly. And he lifted his arm up. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> you you know more than you let on. Like you may not have the skills to talk back. But you you heard it understood exactly what I just said. And it's wild. It is totally wild. They are so smart. They know all this stuff. It's unbelievable. So if you just think about children from zero to five, they have 85% of their brain is developed by age three. They are learning. They might not be able to talk very well. They can't put their clothes on very well. But I'm telling you, they can learn another language. They can learn three languages by the age of five. I have a four-year-old granddaughter who can translate for me in Spanish, Spanish to English. It is amazing. But if you go to Switzerland, you meet all these people. I mean, just ordinary people who can speak German, Italian, French, and English. And they're just regular people. And they didn't go to college. You know, they didn't study anything. They all learned it as children. It's so interesting. So, so this trust in this respect, I think it's so interesting and, and such a, like, to me, it really hits home and everyone has a different experience. So, you know, people listening, think about what this means for you and whether or not it, it fits in your life and in your own ways of knowing. I am curious because you mentioned Google and you mentioned business. How do you see, do you have any specific stories or examples for how this translates into the business arena? How do you bring uh, higher levels of trust and respect to the business world? So there's a, a, a contrast between many, many businesses. And the biggest contrast is really trust. So there are products out there on the market that will that a business can install in the seats of the of the business to see how much seat time a person's actually putting in at work. And this is a total lack of trust on the part of the business. They think that the employee isn't really working the way they should be. And I would contrast that with Google. Google, there is no time clock. You're not expected to come to work at any particular time. There's a sense of community of when you, you know, you should have meetings at this time, but you can arrange your own schedule. You don't have to go home at a particular time. 
part of the reason that they have free food at Google, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, is because a lot of employees just stay. I mean, they stay there till 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, the idea is we, you trust the employee. You know, there's a certain job you have to get done. You work together with your team, so there's collaboration. And you get that job done. And nobody's going to tell you how to get that job done. Whereas there's companies that, that you clock in and you clock out, and they want to make sure you're there that entire time. But they don't own your soul. And, you know, they don't own your passion. I mean, you're just sitting there at work. They can't tell by just looking at you how passionate you are about the work. But I can tell you, when you are in a situation where you are told what to do all the time and you don't feel trusted and respected, your passion is minimal. You know, your number one passion is, when do I get out of here? And how much money am I going to be making? And it's not really aligned as much with how can I help that company, you know, produce a more creative and a better product. It's it's more of a self-interest. So I see that actually in Silicon Valley, a lot of companies have picked up this Google model where they take really good care of their employees and where, you know, you you don't clock in at a certain time that, you know, if you're there at eight o'clock, that's great. If you're there at eight 30, well, clearly something happened. We're not going to question you. You know, you had to, you know, for whatever reason you came late, but I do the same thing in my classroom. You know, I expect the kids to all be there on time. And if they're not there on time, I don't go after them. You know, I, I assume that they had to go to the bathroom or there was something that came up or they had to talk to the teacher last period or whatever. They're always there, they're, they, you know, and, you know, we take role. Actually, I don't take role. I have one of the kids take role, and then they pass the role on to one of the teachers, and then we enter it into the system. But, you know, just that very small detail has a huge impact because the role-taking in my class is passed around from student to student, and so they all feel empowered at one point or another that, you know, they're in charge of taking role. And, you know, role-taking role is required by the state. You know, the teacher, of course, checks, but the student is, in fact, do, the one who is busy doing the actual role-taking. And that makes them, that puts them in a position of responsibility and respect. Any class, that could happen in any class. It doesn't just have to happen in my class. And, and I was teaching not journalism at that time. I was teaching English. So I've taught English and math, social studies, and journalism. Those are my subject areas. Wow. So tell me about independence, the other, the other parts of this acronym. I'd love to hear about them, if you can take us through independence. So independence, so let's just start with little kids and independence. So when my kids were little, when actually it was Susan and Janet, I think I was pregnant with Anna at the time. You know, I did not want to get up early. You know how awful it is. Kids wake up at the crack of dawn. It's like, oh, my God. Always. <laughs> Always. Whatever you do, you know, you put them to bed at 11 o'clock and they still wake up at the crack of dawn. Like, there is a what? study that shows that all children wake up between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m. You can't get them to sleep in. <laughs> it's, just un it's just like awful. Anyway, so I was like, I'm going to solve this problem. So, you know. We bought the cereals they like. Of course, they were in the store with me, so they got to pick out their favorite cereal or whatever. And I put all those cereals in the pantry on the very lowest shelf. They could reach them, you know. So 
then the bowls in the pan, in the closet were right there. You could find get a bowl. So I taught them how to get your own bowl, how to pick the cereal you want, how to pour it into the bowl. And then in the, the milk, you know, those containers can be really big. So I put the milk in a really small container they, with a little handle so that they could pick it up in the refrigerator themselves. So they would pick up the milk, the bowl, the cereal, get their own spoon, sit down in front of the TV and turn on Sesame Street. They had two choices, Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. That was it. Back in those days, there were not a lot of cartoons and stuff like that. And they turned it, <laughs> turned it on themselves. And that was independence. They got to get their own food themselves. I came downstairs an hour later. I was so pleased with myself. I must tell you, it was like, oh, wow. And there they were, eating breakfast and watching TV. I was so, yeah, that's how it worked. That's and, amazing. <laughs> and so there's a lot of different options for kids to have breakfast, whatever it is you decide you want them to have. I guess, you know, today they could even have some kind of frozen waffle or whatever they put in the toaster, push the button and the thing pops up and toast or whatever. But they can learn how to do all this stuff on their own. You know, they don't have to uh, have you there doing it for them. And independence of the classroom. So I think that's one of the hallmarks of the class. I have a goal for the class, right? So like in an English class, it's like we have to read these books. You have to write these papers. You have to do grammar. Why don't you guys get to decide with me how we're going to be structuring this. You know, so here's all the books. Why don't we vote on which book we want to read first? You know, so they have some input into it. Uh, the other thing I did is usually in most, most classes, you have only four books or maybe even three books for the whole year. That doesn't really, I mean, they can read a lot more than that. So what I did, I have a bookstore across the street from me called Books Incorporated. And when they finished reading one of the books that was required, we all went across the street and they got to pick the book they wanted in the bookstore. They, that was one of the highlights of the year, the semester actually, because we did it both semesters. They got to pick, and you know how kids love bookstores. Well, there probably aren't as many bookstores as there used to be, but anyway, they love bookstores. They never wanted to leave. They got to pick whatever book it was they wanted. Then they shared with their friends the book that they picked that made reading exciting. I'm not kidding. Some kids picked really academic books. Some kids picked, you know, whatever they wanted. I didn't care what they picked. So the fact that they had independence and they were able to make decisions themselves, that's what made the difference. That is really the key. And so if you don't have a bookstore across the street from your school, they can still pick books that they want to read. You know, there's the school library. Usually there is still a school library, we hope. And if <laughs> there's not a library, maybe they can go to the public library and bring the book back. But it's just that kind of decision-making helps them feel empowered. Because mm. no human likes to be told what to do at all times. Like if I took my two-year-old and I told him, and now you get dressed, and now you use the bathroom, and now you do that, like marching him through these these orders of what to do, I, I would, you know how fast I would rebel if my husband or anyone told me to do things in a sequence like that? It, it'd be over. <laughs> it'd be over in a minute. Yeah. And little kids, their number one thing is, you know, they want to do it themselves. And my daughters were like, self, self. They want to do it themselves. You know, like, okay, the shoes are on backwards or what, the sweater is upside down, whatever. It's like they did it themselves. And I think that that is what you want to encourage. 
this sense of empowerment and respect and independence. And then the, the C on the trick, collaboration, you know, that I think is the hardest thing of all for all people, you know, whether they're two years old or whether they're, you know, 35 or 45, 55, collaboration is really is a skill you have to develop. And because you know what little kids do, they, they don't want to share, right? It's mine. And so you have to teach them, teach them to collaborate and show them that it's more fun when they share. And, you know, okay, two different toys. You get to play with your toy, play with your toy. And now let's see, why don't we trade toys so that we can see what the other person is playing with? It's just a lot of, a lot of opportunity for them to have a more exciting experience if they share. But that, does, you know, it takes time for kids to learn to share. Oh, yeah, that's a skill. That's a skill. And then, of course, the same thing happens in the business world. You know, people don't want to share ideas. They're like, oh, that was my idea. I want credit. And that's what I do in my classes when I'm teaching journalism. It's a community project. You know, I have 60 kids in the class. It's one publication. They all contribute to it. No one can put a newspaper out, you know, a 24 to 28 page full size newspaper alone. It's a project that requires collaboration. And so they learn collaboration and they learn to work with everybody. And, you know, whether they don't like the kid or they do like the kid, they learn to like each other well enough to work together and actually becomes a big family. They feel very connected to each other. So in a lot of companies, you know, they have that sense of community and that's great because that's how the company grows. And I mean, I was just listening to this guy yesterday at the TED conference who started this yogurt company called Chobani. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he was amazing the way he took care of his employees. I mean, it wasn't just him and his yogurt company. It was him and his employees. And he wanted to make sure that they were all happy that, you know, that they got a part of the company, that it, it was a community effort. I, and it's a really big yogurt company today. And all those employees feel like they're part of the company. I, that's the way it should be. I am fascinated by the idea of kindness, too, as a quality, both for raising children, but also in the business world, because I think it's not something that people pin their hats to. How did you identify this one? And where does it show up for you? Well, I identified that actually in my classes. I also, I also tried to treat my children with kindness. You know, everyone makes mistakes, and I wanted to make it sure, make it okay to make a mistake, to apologize, whatever it was that you did, and then to move forward. But in my classes, that's where it really showed a lot because, you know, kids do all kinds of crazy things. They're kids, you know, and school is a place to learn. And they take things from each other, they cheat, you know, they plagiarize, they do things that they shouldn't be doing. And so my philosophy has always been, if they do something that they are, it's against the rules or whatever they shouldn't be doing, has always been, you have to stay after school with me, we have to talk about it. And then you have to write an essay about it. And in the process of writing about it, they really have to reflect and they have to understand how whatever the, whatever it was they did might have had a not 
intended consequence that wasn't so good on someone else. And so I find that this treating kids in this way without reporting them to the main office where they would get expelled or, I don't know, suspended or something, made a huge impact on the way they behaved and the way they treated other people and the way they, and the, the, the kindness made them be kinder people themselves. So it, I mean, it stands out like crazy in class. And I've taught in very low income areas, like in Richmond, California, is a very low income school district. And San Leandro is another place. And so it, I'll tell you, the kids in low-income areas, when you treat them with kindness, they don't really know what to do. They're so used to be treated, being treated poorly. It takes a while for them to realize that you really are a kind person and that kindness really works, and it works better than being harsh. So I think, I know it's hard for teachers to do, but they should just start with one little area where they can be kind to their students. And, you know, for example, plagiarism, I had a kid that plagiarized. And so you have to understand, try to ask yourself, why did he plagiarize? And the answer, the reason most kids plagiarize is they have very low self-esteem and they think that they can't do it. And that the only way to do it is to have somebody else whose words are better do it. So you have to work with them and explain this whole thing and how plagiarizing causes not only them problems, but it's bad because you just took somebody else's intellectual property and you gave it to yourself. And, you know, when they understand that and when they feel better about themselves, then they won't do that. They won't plagiarize. They won't cheat. So, for example, in my classes, when you're writing an essay, you get to revise that essay until it's an A essay. So some kids revise two times and some kids revise 10 times. But it's your work and you're learning and yes, you can do it. You don't have to rely on somebody else. Your brain is good enough so you can do the same thing. And so that's what I mean by treating kids with kindness. And in the business world, we all make mistakes the same thing, you know, you assume people want to do it well and you give them that credit, the opportunity to show that they did it, wanted to do it well and they didn't somehow. Let's all work together to see whether we can't get whatever project it was that you were working on to be a success. Do you ever have an instance when that's not the case, when you've worked with somebody over time and there's something else going on? What do you do in times when you? do need discipline or consequences? What does that look like? Well, if you have somebody who is just out to make somebody else miserable, that's a problem. And that does happen. You know, there are kids that are just, they somehow are happy when other people are unhappy. And so if if you have a situation like that, then it requires more discipline, and then you might need to get a therapist involved. You might to get the school administration involved to help out. I've had very few kids in that category, but I have. There are some that are are like that, and that have created problems or kids that absolutely refuse to do their work, refuse, and 
you know, you work and work and work with them and they absolutely won't do it. And so in situations like that, you just have to let the natural consequences happen. You know, they have to have an, get an F and then they have to redo it. Some kids just take harsher punishment in order to get them to do what it is that you need them to do. So I have given Fs before. And, but usually that means that they have to go to summer school and then they come back and they've learned what it is that they have to learn in order to move to the next semester. So you there, I'm telling you this happens as well, but it's not as common that, as you think. Most of the time kids will respond to the kindness and respond to the help. And I think usually, because I'm dealing with kids in high school, so, you know, I have 16, 17, 18-year-olds, and these are kids who have had a whole schooling career of being treated terribly, and then they encounter me and they don't know what to do. So sometimes that is a problem. They can't can't believe what they've encountered, you know, that, that somebody actually likes them and respects them. So it takes a little bit more effort in that direction, but I've, I'm happy to say that in all the years I've been teaching, the rare exception, they've all managed to, to turn around. I have two more questions for you. Uh, the first, can you tell me, what are your kids, grown-ups now, what is it like to be in relationship with them now? What are they teaching you today as adults? So now, yes, they're, they're adults. They have their own children they have their own lives. They're doing amazing things. I think the main thing that I learned as a grandparent is that your grandchildren are not like your children. You cannot come into your child's house and say, for example, they have to wear a jacket because it's cold outside. You know, that child that is now your the parent of another of your grandchild has common sense themselves that they can do the same thing. And so I think it's important for grandparents to realize and to delineate. There has to be a sense of uh, respect there where, you know, you, the grandparent doesn't come in and try to take over. So what I've learned is there's definite boundaries where, you know, you don't want to infringe on their independence as a parent and you want to trust and respect that they're going to do what should be done. And I know that a lot of grandparents find that difficult to do. And actually, I made some mistakes myself. So I used to come into the house, my God, I had such great time going to the store buying all these adorable things, right? Toys, whatever. And so after a while, you know, their houses were getting packed with all the toys I was buying. Turns out they don't appreciate all this. And so, you know, you have to back off. You have to realize that you cannot uh, come in and try to control what's going on. They have the right to bring up their children the way they want to. And for the most part, 100% of the time, they're, do, they're following this whole trick principle. And I don't never said to them, do it. It's instinctual. You tend to parent the way you were parented. So they trust their kids. They respect their kids. They give their kids a ton of independence. They do everything in trick. But I have to remember, you know, not to step in and say, you know, so-and-so needs to have 
you know, why don't you feed them more? Or why don't you do this? Or can you brush their hair or something? Back off. You know, you can't do that. I have a great relationship with them. Unfortunately, we see each other once a week and sometimes more often. And I'm blessed because they live nearby and I don't have to fly to see them. But I know that's not the case in a lot of American families. You know, you, you, you live in New York and your child lives in California. Like, oh, my God, five hour trip. But you can use FaceTime or, you know, you can use Google Hangouts or something so you can collaborate and be part of their lives. The last question I have for you is what's next? What are you doing with this book? And then do you know what's coming up after the book? What are you up to? So what's next is I'm hoping to write another book. Can you believe that? Yes. This one is actually just targeting the classroom. I actually would like to do a little booklets for parents on like a little booklet on trick and a little booklet on respect. But for the the classroom, I'd like to have a series of like small lessons for teachers because, you know, main thing teachers don't have is time. So just like little little things for them to do that would enhance trust in the class, that would enhance respect or independence, little things that can make a big difference. So I'd like to be able to help teachers work less and be more effective and make kids happier. And I think the book will help a lot. The one right now, How to Raise Successful People, will really help teachers a lot and parents a lot. But sometimes those little booklets, you know, where you just have to write, read 20 pages or something like that, could also be a quicker way to get that specific idea into your life. And so that's what I was, was hoping to do. And one of the companies that I'm working with is going to call it the Wodge Way. And so my students, they have this nickname for me, by the way, Wodge, W-O-J, <laughs> the first three letters of my name. And so they're the ones that named it the Wodge way. This is the way we learn. And so I thought that was the next step, the Wodge way. Well, I will, and everyone listening will be following along to see your book when it comes out, and then also the journey of your next books. Where can people find you on the internet to learn more about you? Do you have a website that you like to send people to or social media? What should they look for? So I have a small website right now, and it's called raisesuccessfulpeople.com. And it will be enhanced with more information about me, more information. And also, I want to set up some kind of a place for people, for parents especially, to interact with each other and ask each other questions and give each other advice that I could then also monitor. And it could be called The Wadgeway. If you type in thewadgeway.com, it also leads to that website. So the website's being developed at the moment. And it would be, like I said, have a blog post that will make a difference. Wow. Okay. So everyone listening, everything that we talked about in today's episode will be in our show notes and on our website, startuppregnant.com. You can find links to her book, to the Beacon Street TED Talk, to the Wodge Way, and to anything that was mentioned today. You can find it in our show notes in your podcast player app or online on startuppregnant.com. 
Esther, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your journey and all about this book. Thank you so much for inviting me and I wish everybody all the best. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.